Uh, take your Bibles, if you will, and go to 1 Peter. Uh, we've been going through the book of 1 Peter for all this month so far. And I uh, hope it's been a blessing to you. Hope, uh, hope uh, it's been an encouragement to you. It's certainly been an encouragement to me. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy being immersed uh, in the Word of God. Uh, way, my first book to ever to do that with was the book of John. And uh, when I first got here, I guess the second time I got here in 2016, uh, Pastor John asked me to preach on the evening services through the book of John. I don't think he knew it would take me a little bit over a year to do so, uh, but uh, that's what I did. And uh, I, I was convinced that the only way I can really convey the message of John was to be immersed in the book of John. So I committed to reading uh, seven chapters uh, every day, one through seven, seven through 14, and, and 15 to 21, just every day. And it, about a year and a half later, I fell in love with the book of John. I mean, it's a great book. I mean, even if you read it one time, you, you can uh, enjoy uh, the book of John. But we are in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapters 1 through 5 this morning. <laughs> uh, we're going to be bouncing around a little bit, and I've entitled this message, The Well-Doing Man. Uh, or a man of well-doing, or a people of well-doing, however, however you want uh, to label that. But again, we've been in this epistle all month, and uh, if you've not jumped into our scripture immersion, uh, it's on our website, it's on, it's on the bulletin here, it's sent out uh, weekly, but if, uh, we immerse ourselves, again, about 15 minutes, 20 minutes a day, in a certain book of the Bible, and if it's a longer book, like we did 1 Corinthians a couple months ago, and we just divided the chapters up, and we did, you know, uh, maybe the first week this piece, and the second week this piece, and, and so forth. Uh, but we've done, this year, we've done James, we've done Corinthians, we've done 1 Peter, and it seems like I'm missing one. There's another one in there somewhere. But we love the Bible, and we love the Word of God. Again, if you haven't done so, it only takes... 15 to 20 minutes of your day, depending on how fast you read, and I encourage you to join us. And, and thinking about that, it's just something special, I believe, when the whole church, or the majority of the church, is kind of on the same page, so to speak. Uh, it just brings a certain unity, uh, I believe, to the church. I don't mean you can't be in unity if you don't follow along, but I do think it uh, brings a unity uh, to the church. In fact, in Josiah's day, back in the Old Testament, uh, when all of Jerusalem was focusing on one part of Scripture, namely the law there, uh, y'all remember the passage there, Jeremiah and Josiah, uh, they all stood to the governor. There was a revival there in the Old Testament, mainly because they were studying all one uh, part of the law that, that, was, that was just re re-given to them, if you will. Not a new law, but the same text. Uh, but they just, they just fell in love with the Bible, and it wasn't too long after that that they went their wayward ways in some places like that. But for that moment... And for this moment, and not just this morning, but for our life, uh, may we have a revival. And we'll talk about that tonight as well. Uh, God, of course, sends revival according to many things, namely His prerogative. Uh, but I believe, I believe in unity in priorities. I think it makes a difference. Uh, Amos uh, 3, 3, I think it is, says, how can two, be agree or how can two walk together if they're not agree in agreement? Uh, so God sends revival according to His pro, uh, priorities, but I think unity is a breeding ground for the for revival. For all, we're all together. Uh, matter of fact, another place in the Old Testament was Solomon was uh, was um, was teaching to the people there, and they all bowed their head as one man. The Bible says they were in unison. And in here in our text this morning at First Peter, 
all of 1 Peter. We'll be jumping around uh, a little bit. There are too many truths, truly, uh, really, to capture in a month of Sundays. Uh, so I believe we have to follow the Lord and figure out what truths He wants us to amplify uh, during the month. And this morning, I want to deliver to you a few principles that I believe are in here, a few principles of behavior based on a systematic uh, deduction of Scripture here, of 1 Peter, and also by specific passages in the context. You're like, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> there are some principles in the, in the Scriptures here, and also in 1 Peter, of course in 1 Peter, that we can clearly deduce from text. And there's some other, other principles in, in the Scripture that are very, very clear. Does that make sense? So there's some we, we, we get through a study, and there's some are very, very clear. For example, in the Old Testament... Uh, the Bible commands, thou shalt not covet. That's black and white. There's no, there's no gray area there. Uh, and in the New Testament, Paul writes that we should covet the best gifts. Speaking of preaching, also black and white. So what gifts? So we study the Word of God out, and our takeaway is that we should covet the things of God and not covet the things of the world. Uh, that's our, our takeaway, a clear inference from the text based on the actual words of the text. That's a, an oversimplified uh, example of that, but there's many examples in there. Any of us that have studied uh, a little bit more than just a couple minutes will see some of the things, like the Trinity. It's, uh, I believe it's clearly stated in the Trinity, but it's also a deduction from, uh, from text. And to begin our study this morning, I want us to not jump around a little bit. Notice chapter 2. I want you to look at verse... 13 and 15. Verse 13 says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing, remember that's our theme this morning, with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And then I want you to jump over to 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, Wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator. And we're going to pause right there and open in a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much again uh, for the saints that are here, Lord. We thank you for the, the ability to praise you and to, and to sing uh, songs to you, Lord. Help us to, uh, to, to do so with a pure heart and truth and spirit, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for the, for the ministry that you've given us here in this community, Lord. We thank you for the air that we breathe, Lord, all the, all the blessings that you've, you've given us throughout our life, Lord. The, the things that we struggle with, Lord, are really many times just first world problems, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for the blessings that you've given us, Lord. But above all these things, Lord, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the cross. And we thank you for hearing us and believing in, in us, Lord, that we can serve you, Lord, and using us in spite of us. And Lord, and we just love you this morning. Help us to, to learn from your text, Lord, to, to be motivated a little bit more, Lord, to live for you, to live our life in you. And Lord, and we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in, this, in this, these few passages I just read, you will notice their theme of well-doing. But not just a theme of well-doing, but that well-doing is the will of God. 
I mean, you see that very clearly in all those passages. And matter of fact, look at that last run in 419. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit to the keeping of their souls in him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Our well-doing as believers is the will of God. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it, as they say. Uh, but it is the will of God. So I believe that one of the greatest principles for believers here that, that can be taken from 1 Peter is that we as believers should be a people of well-doing. A people of well-doing. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, after writing of the end times, Peter gives us a lot of things about what the end times is. Because we're believers, uh, we need to know what's going on in the future because of all these things. In verse 11 of chapter 3, he says, Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? Because of all these things, because you, because you are a believer, because Christ died for you, because these things are coming, there's troubles and tribulations that will come to this earth. What kind of manner of person should we be? Who, who ought we to be? And this, of course, is written to believers. It's written to believers. And the only proper conclusion that we can take away from that is that we are to be a people of well-doing. We should be do-gooders. I mean, is that too old-fashioned? We should do good. You know, but it's true. We should be a people of well-doing. Sometimes our well-doing silences the ignorance of foolish men. Sometimes our well-doing will cause suffering as if it were evil-doing. And sometimes the suffering of our well-doing is to bolster our faith in God and our trust in God. But the well-doing is always, always, always the will of God. Always the will of God. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. 1 Peter 2, 9, right here in our text now this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, if that doesn't imply that we should live good, I, I really don't know what does. You know, chosen generation. It speaks of our position in Christ. A royal priesthood speaks of our relationship with Christ. Ever think about why he's the king of kings? Because he made us kings. He made us a royal priesthood. We are kings, small k, and he is the king of kings. Uh, of course, that applies to all kings, whether they're in Christ or not. He's the king of all, but he is our king. We are a royal priesthood. He's the king of kings because, he's, because he made us kings. And then it says a holy nation. And that speaks of our separation unto Christ. Set apart, sanctified. And then a peculiar people. Very interesting word indeed. But it speaks of how we belong to Christ in light of where we are in this world. We belong somewhere else. We're pilgrims passing through. But all of these things, I'm convinced, because of the way Peter writes this epistle, all of this suggests that we should live differently. We're God's people. Be holy. Look at first chapter one. Be holy, for I am holy. Verse 16. Be holy, for I am holy. We are to be a people of well-doing. You know, I'm going to say this quite often throughout this message. This letter is written to believers. So it's not so much geared to draw the lost to Christ as it is to compel those already in Christ to live for Christ. Talk about a message that is applicable to us today. It's always applicable, really. But if you look at our day and age, and we see a lot of nonsense from God's people. 
Tyler talked about it earlier on. Today, the I surrender all, it's a difference between true Christians and those who are just Christians. Yeah, I'm a Christian, and there's no impact, nowhere, no influence whatsoever. I heard it once said before, if we were to put on, if we were to be put on trial for Christianity, would we be guilty? Would there be enough evidence to convict us that we're followers of Christ? Again, this letter is not written to the lost people. It's written to believers. Again, a, a very applicable message. And if you think about it, we, we really don't assemble together to, to worship because it makes us feel good. That's not why we're here. We don't come here to, to check the block. And, well, I, I served the Lord this week. We don't come because it fits our agenda. We, sh we should come, we should assemble because we love him. Yes, there's some byproducts to, to encourage one another, to exhort the brethren and to, and to study and receive and, be, and to grow in Christ. But number one, we come because we love him. We come to learn from his word and, and Christians should actually care about being a, being a people of well-doing. Do we care about being a people of well-doing? You know, one of the best things any country on earth can have today or any day is for Christians to get serious about living for God. To be a people of well-doing. I realize this kind of preaching is not popular today, but it's also not some religious or political rant. Peter wrote in 2 Peter again, verse number 12 of chapter 1, he says, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them. And be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as I'm in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Get that now. Peter says, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to keep reminding you of the things that you already know to do. As long as I'm alive. That's my purpose. And back in 1 Peter, God through him is going to give us a number of examples, I believe, of how we can live through Christ, in Christ, in well-doing. Look again at 2 Peter, uh, or 1 Peter rather, 2.13. The wind's blowing my pages here. It says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man. He writes to all Christians when he says this. And then in verse 18 of chapter 2, he says, servants, being subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the forward. Now he's writing to servants. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he writes to the believing, says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. And there in verse number 7, he also continues on by saying, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. And then finally, in verse 8 of chapter 3, he writes to all Christians again. He, he, he bookends it, if you will, to all Christians on both ends. He says, finally, be, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Now, these verses are clearly intended for each group. There's groups there, and then there's a catch-all at the ends. They're specified to servants, to wives, to husbands, and so forth. And word for word, make no mistake, they are applicable to us today. And while it's not the main thrust of our sermon this morning, many Christians balk at these passages because they believe they're old-fashioned principles or old-fashioned concepts of life. And to be honest, they are certainly entitled to the wrong opinion. But they need not wonder why their prayers are hindered. 
right there in verse number 7, it tells us why their prayers are hindered. So it's clear that God is a God of equality, but he's also a God of order and decency. And any well-doing outside of God's pattern of well-doing at, at best just frustrates the will of God. But instead of this morning preaching only to individuals, individual groups rather, as into servants, wives, or husbands. We'll get in a little bit of these things. But I believe there are also some principles in each of these sections. We won't go through every single one of them. Uh, but some principles that apply to all believers. To every one of us. In the beginning, I, I, I shared with you, I entitled this sermon as the well-doing man. Or, or a people of well-doing. Or something along with the theme of well-doing. And because of where our society is today, I know I probably don't have to say this here. But by man, I mean mankind. That's everybody. Humanity, if you will. Specifically Christian humans. And first and foremost, our well-doing, it should be no surprise to us here this morning, it begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's no well-doing without Christ. So if you don't know him today, don't leave this building without him. Don't leave this building without him. You are dead in your sins without Christ. God didn't send Jesus to die on a cross just because we were on the way to some other planet. He sent us here for a purpose, to die and redeem man with his blood. He became our sin. I hope that resonates deeply in our hearts. He became our sin. The man who knew no sin became sin. The man who never murdered was convicted of murder. The man who never lied was convicted of lying and, all, and so forth and so forth and took that penalty to the cross. What would take an eternity for us to pay, he paid on the cross. On one atonement, our well-doing begins with a relationship with him. And then for us Christians who have accepted Christ as our Savior, there are some principles given by Peter by God through Peter, for all believers. And we're going to begin this morning, again, right there in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Look at verse number 1. Verse number 1 saying, likewise, and the likewise is a comparison to Christ, by the way. Uh, he says again for the husbands there later on uh, in verse 7, likewise is also a comparison to Christ. Uh, but likewise, you wives... Be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man. Let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, a great price, a great price. Number one, the hidden man. We want to be a man of well-doing. It begins with the hidden man. I, I realize again that Peter is addressing the wives here, and that should catch the attention of every wife here. Every time we read that, the wives should pay attention to this. We all should really, uh, but it's specifically addressed to the wives. Verse 1 gives wives a very good reason for subjection. What's that reason? So the husband can be won to the Lord. That's a great reason. And I believe this passage refers to lost husbands, as well as disobedient, believing husbands. And ultimately, it refers to all disobedient husbands. Uh, that word conversation uh, in, our, in our text here is defined as one's manner of life, their conduct. Their behavior, the wife's deportment, or simply their works. Their works. Husbands who disobey the word can, without the word, be won by the works of the wife. 
In other words, his character, the husband, whoever he thinks he is or however he lives his life, has nothing to do with the works of the wife. She serves God. She serves God. When the wife stands alone before God at the end of days as a believer, she will not be able to turn to her husband. She will not be able to blame her husband for her lack of obedience. She must be a woman of well-doing regardless, no matter what. I stand here before you today as a preacher of the gospel because of a woman of well-doing. She was living her life for the Lord when I was still living for the world. I would not be here without her because she is a woman of well-doing. And I think she, um, she would be mad at me if she heard this right now, but she'll hear it tomorrow when she's at work. Uh, but she would, get, she would probably not uh, be very happy if I were to tell her that she embodies this, uh, this passage here. Look down at uh, verse number four. But it, let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. My wife has a meek and quiet spirit and that changed me. I knew something was different in her and I was already saved. She got saved 10 years after I did. But it stuck with her from the beginning and not so with me. I'm here because of her. In these verses, let's see here. So in her life and in all the wives' lives, uh, it must be stated that the secret to well-doing for the wife is the same as for every believer, and that is the hidden man of the heart. It's rooted in Jesus Christ. We must be a man of well, we must be a people of well-doing because we are a people of God. In these verses here, in these verses 1 through 4 and some other passages here, Peter contrasts the outward appearance of the woman, right? Look at that. Who's adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of plating the hair, wearing of gold, and putting on of apparel. He contrasts that outward appearance with inward piety. There's a difference between the two. And he is not saying that women or any person shouldn't look nice. God, we, we appreciate women looking nice. We appreciate men looking nice. We, we want to be our best, especially for the Lord. But the best outward appearance is the revealing of the hidden man. That is the best outward appearance. And that's what Peter is getting at here. He said, let their adorning be the hidden man of the heart. And that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, not the ornament of earrings and hair color and all those things like that. I'm not against those things. My wife has both of those. But what's more important to God is a meek and quiet spirit, the revealing of the hidden man. Look at that, which is in the sight of God, a blessing, a little, a little good thing? No, a great price. Look at the impact that we can have on God. We can be a great price, a great treasure to God. Not just with our position, but with our practice. In a day and age when many believers today of both genders are so focused on self and outward appearance, God says our best look comes from within us, from the hidden man. And specifically for the wives, it's a meek and quiet spirit. This is well-doing. And then Peter continues on to the husbands in verse 7. He says, dwell with them according to knowledge. Likewise, give honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. I know, not popular, right? But before we get to this next point, I, want to, I would like to point out that the Bible refers to the wife as the weaker vessel. In other words, we're equal. As. It's, it's using it. It's a simile. Uh, but the husband should love his bride the way Christ loves his bride. 
I personally believe that wives should be greatly esteemed. I personally believe women should be greatly esteemed. I'm old-fashioned. I like opening doors for a woman when she comes to the door and holding the, holding the door for her or whatever it may be, carrying their books in high school, whatever it may be. You might want to pause on that one if you're in high school because that might send a different message. But uh, women should be highly esteemed. Turn with me quickly with, uh, to, back to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. God gives us a sample. Paul, God through Paul, gives us an example a little bit of how women should be esteemed. Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, excuse me, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. So husband, let's be honest here. This is a, this is a tall order. This is a tall order. But I want you to notice a couple of things. We're not going to focus too much here in Ephesians 5, but look at verse 27, that he might present. Present. That conveys the idea, in my mind at least, of elevating. He's presenting the bride. I mean, think of the picture there. Us, the church, Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, presenting us. And how does He present us? Look down to um, why, that He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. For the church... Christ is going to elevate us far, be of, far above what we deserve. It's an obvious, obvious conclusion, right? Far above and beyond what we deserve, and not according to our works, but according to His righteousness. So we get that now. Jesus is going to elevate His bride far above what we deserve according to His attributes, and not according to our attributes. And as husbands, we're to love our wives the way Christ loved His wife. If we are to love our wives as He loved the church, our actions, again, much like the wives, likewise, have nothing to do with what she deserves. Right? Has nothing to do with how great she is, how meek she is. doesn't matter if she's a perfect Proverbs 31 virtuous woman or she's the complete opposite of that. It has nothing to do with our actions to her. We're to love her the way Christ loves the church. That's the likewise we're coming through here in 1 Peter. Our actions have nothing to do with what she deserves. And our actions are the revealing of the hidden man in our hearts. We too must be a people of well-doing, men of well-doing. But that well-doing begins again with the hidden man. And as Peter continues, we will see that because we have that hidden man, we should be a holy man. A holy man. Look at verse 3, back in, or chapter 3 rather, and jump down to verse number 8. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 8. He says, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love us, brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrary by his blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they should speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. A holy man. God gives us many attributes here in these passages here. Ten attributes, actually, of what a holy man should be. He focuses, Peter again, focuses on the outward behavior, assuming an inward birth. So never miss that here in 1 Peter. All of these actions are not works for salvation. They're works because of salvation. He is focusing again on our outward behavior, assuming an inward birth. He's writing to compel readers, his readers, believing readers, to live a life of well-doing based on the relationship they have with Christ. Notice some of the key phrases here uh, encouraging and encouraging the well-doing of believers. Ten things there. He says, be of one mind. He says, have compassion for each other. He says, love as brothers. Be pitiful or have a compassionate demeanor. Be courteous. Overcome evil with good. Remember your inheritance. Control your tongue. Eschew evil and do good. And seek and follow peace. Now, we don't have time to go through all those things. I think they're self-explanatory. But these attributes are listed and they are supposed to describe us. They're so, supposed to describe our well-doing, a behavior of a holy man. Remember, well-doing is the will of God. The well-doing is the will of God. Uh, to be a holy people of well-doing, these ten things should describe us. The opposites should not describe us. But very quickly, not only should we be holy, but we should be hardy. As incapable of enduring difficult positions. And this probably speaks to many of us. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Happy. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Look at that last phrase of verse 14. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. Neither be troubled. In other words, God has told us in this world we're going to have tribulation. He also has told us that we will, he has overcome the world. And ultimately, that means that every trial and tribulation that we have are already overcome. Now, we, of course, live in time and we live through these things. And God is outside of time. He's the creator of time. But we can trust him. We can trust him through the darkness. You know, he is our only friend who knows what tomorrow holds. He's the only person. He's the only one. In a very real sense, God is leading our past self through the present self to our future self. And in my mind, I actually drew this down. You don't want to see the picture because I'm not a very artist like stick figures. And, but whatever, I got a picture of, of present self over here, right? This is a timeline. And over here, I got a, I got a picture of future self. And in the middle is God. I didn't draw God. I just, just put some words there. And over here, in present self, I'm praying, God, help me through this. This is tough. I can't see past this. I passed this. And he says, trust me. And over here, I can see all where he delivered me in every aspect of my life. How he held my hand where I couldn't see. And many times I wasn't holding him, but he was carrying me. And all those. But I can see all those things. And it's almost like we want future self to come back to present self and say, hey, this is, I've already seen the future, right? We see all those movies, the future traveling, and we want to know what the future is. 
God holds the future in His hands. We don't need to see that. We need to see Him. We need to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ because He... It's almost like we would trust our, the word of our future self more than the Almighty God. Does that make sense? We want to trust God more. Matter of fact, do we believe that future self, and this is kind of ridiculous, right? Future self would tell always the truth to present self? Who knows? We're faulty. We're not, we're not perfect. He is. He knows the future. Trust on Him. Trust Him. Call on His name. And, and truly, that's what Hardy is all about, is trusting God. How do we endure? We trust God. We know what the end is. We know what the end is. And Peter is saying we should not be afraid when evil prevails. We should not be afraid or even be troubled because we have the answer. We know the man, the God who became man, who has the answer. He holds even our future in his hand. Remember John 14, 1? Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Now, what's the rest of that passage talking about? A home prepared. In other words, this is not our home. We have a home prepared by the master, by the creator. Don't be troubled here because you have a home somewhere else. A home prepared by God. And without negating the reality of our struggles, because they are real here. Struggles that even God understands because he became a man. But we are to have a hope that transcends the struggles. We are to have a hope that overcomes the hurdles. That's, that's how we move mountains. Through faith and our hope. Because it goes beyond the mountains. It's higher than the mountains. Our hope is in God. Our hope goes beyond the grave. Look at verse 15 again. He says, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Of the hope that is in you. Now think about this. If we attempt to deal with all the struggles of life, all the, all the problems, the good times, the bad times, we want to carry them on our shoulders, specifically here the trials that come because of well-doing, and we try to do those without looking to Jesus, we don't have to worry about people asking us about the hope inside of us because they're not going to see it. Because we're trying to live it on our, own, on our own terms. Jesus must be the source of our strengths. The answer to enduring, enduring the suffering of verse 14, is found by sanctifying the hidden man in verse 15. So you get the connection there? I hope that's very, very clear there. The answer of suffering in verse 14 is found by sanctifying the hidden man of verse 15. 2 Timothy 2, Paul tells Timothy to be strong in the grace and endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And here in our text, Peter writes that instead of being troubled, instead of being afraid, instead of worrying about all the things in this world, sanctify God. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Now you might be thinking, how do we do that? How in the world can I sanctify God? He sanctifies us. His word sanctifies us. Now that word sanctify means to set apart, to make holy. To venerate, to consecrate. And while we certainly cannot make God any more holy than He already is, He's the definition of holy, we sure can make Him more holy in our hearts. We can do something about that. We can make God more holy. You know, we became new creatures. He set us apart. He sanctified us for His glory. And as new creatures, God commands that we set Him apart in our hearts. But here's the interesting part. When God set us apart in salvation, 
We are the beneficiaries. We, we receive something, right? We receive eternal life and, and all those things that accompany salvation. And when we set the Lord God apart in our hearts, we again are the beneficiaries. Granted, God receives our worship and He alone deserves our worship. He enjoys our worship. He loves us and He truly loves it when we love Him. So in that aspect, God gets great joy when we worship God. And if you think about it, true worship of God by man is the greatest height we could ever reach. But don't think for a moment that we add anything to God when we come to God. He's complete without us. He's complete without us. Again, sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts brings great joy to God. But it brings strength and enablement to us. We're, we get benefits from it. It brings hardiness. It brings the ability to endure. When we lift up God in our hearts, is, the question really is black and white. Is, is, is Jesus Christ on the throne of my heart or am I on the throne of my heart? Is he set apart or is he just mixed in there with the other compromising things? Set him apart in our hearts. An old preacher once told me that when your church is going through difficult times, preach Jesus. Lift up Jesus in your assembly. Sanctify him in the congregation. And the same is true for us individuals. Tough times are endured by making much of Jesus Christ. By making much of Jesus Christ. And not only on the outside, but on the inside. We must sanctify the Lord God in our hearts. And then the well-doing that is apparent by our display of spiritual fortitude will generally prompt others to say, there's something different about you. You're going through this trouble here. How are you continuing? What hope do you have? What hope do you have? We talked a few weeks ago, a few months ago maybe, about what real hope is. Our hope again goes beyond the grave. Hope brings so much to the individual believer. And when the world sees that hope, the Bible says get ready. Because they're going to ask. Be ready always to give an answer of the hope that's in you. And truthfully, we can be a hearty man, a tough man, because we are a holy man. And we can only be a holy man because of the hidden man. And because of the hidden man, because of Jesus Christ, whom we should unhide to the world, we should be a people of well-doing. This is the will of God. Last verse here this evening, or this morning. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator, a faithful creator. May we be a people of well-doing this morning, tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. Tonight, Lord willing, I have a challenge before our speaker speaks. I have a challenge that I want to share with you. I believe God's given to me, and it has to do with well-doing. i got six things I think uh, that I think is, uh, for me, I'm going to do it. That's a great challenge. I've shared it with my wife. She's the only one that's seen it so far. But I encourage you to come back to hear this challenge uh, that I want to give uh, to the people here. And with that said, let's just go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much, Lord, for who you are. Lord, we thank you for, for the cross, and we thank you for the blessings, and we thank you for eternal life, and we thank you uh, for the hidden man of our hearts, that we can rely on you, and we can live our life because of you and through you. Lord, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.